0: Hello, and welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa. I'm co-host of the channel, along with Robert Talese, Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books, drawing from a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Sylvia Jonas, Polonsky, postdoctoral fellow at the Van Leer Institute, and visiting researcher at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. Her new book, Ineffability and Its Metaphysics, is just out from Palgrave Macmillan. There's a long history in philosophy and art and religion of claims about the ineffable, from the Tao of Lao Tzu to the One in Plotinus to Kant's noumena or thing in itself to Wittgenstein's famous remark at the end of the Tractatus that whereof one cannot speak, thereof one must be silent. But even if the ineffable cannot in some sense be expressed, what can we say about what it is to be ineffable? What sorts of things are inexpressible, and what sense can be made of the claim that these things are inexpressible? In her new book, Jonas argues that there is no defensible sense in which there are ineffable objects, properties, propositions or contents, but she does think that there are varieties of ineffable knowledge, and the core of these is the idea of a kind of knowledge based on acquaintance, and specifically self-acquaintance. Jonas's book brings together historical and contemporary claims about and concepts of the ineffable, and she provides a critique that will ground and inform philosophical discussion of the ineffable. Let's turn to the interview. Hello,
1: Sylvia Jonas. Are you there? Hello, Kerry. Yes, I am here. Hi. Hi. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Thank you very much, and thank you very much for the invitation.
0: Uh, I'm looking forward to our conversation about your your book, Ineffability and Its Metaphysics. Um, it's a fascinating tour, you know, starting from a number of historical figures, from Lao Tzu to Plotinus to Kant to Wittgenstein, and and of course many others, um, about the concept of the ineffable and and what we if even if there are things that we cannot of which we cannot speak. Um, maybe there's something we can still say about what it is that we can't speak, uh, what it is to not to be able to, to speak about something. Um, so before we get into the actual text of the book, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, um, how you came to philosophy and then, um, how you came to write this book?
1: Um, well, that's, that's actually an interesting question, at least to me. <laughs> My first degree was in political science, and while studying political science, I discovered that what I found most interesting were the philosophical bits. So I went for a master's degree in St. Andrews to study philosophy, and there I discovered that within philosophy, what I find most fascinating are the theoretical bits, And throughout all this time, the topic of ineffability kept coming back. So um, I decided that I wanted to look into this topic, which has a very long and distinguished history in, in philosophy, using what's currently considered the best philosophical apparatus we have out there, which is analytical philosophy, and see if we can make any sense of the concept. Because... Up to today, I would say that most philosophers think that ineffability is not a topic that can be investigated philosophically, or at least not in any meaningful way. And this sort of hand-waving dismissal of ineffability as an interesting topic was something I found always a little bit disturbing. So I wanted to prove everyone wrong who thought that nothing meaningful could be said about the ineffable with the tools of analytic philosophy. So um, I went to Oxford to study with Adrian Moore, one of the experts on uh, ineffable, ineffable things, ineffable knowledge. And uh, yes, I sharpened my tools there and then completed my PhD in Berlin and moved on to a postdoc here in Jerusalem where I finished this book on ineffability and its metaphysics.
0: Very good. So um, just to start us off, um, you know, the the ineffable is, you might say, colloquially thought of as the unspeakable or in some sense perhaps ungraspable or unattainable, um, or it's a special kind of feeling that we, we can't express or... Um, what are some paradigm cases of the ineffable before we get into, I mean, you give a definition of the ineffable in a very precise sort of way, uh, but just to give us a sense of what we're talking about,
1: what what are the paradigm cases uh, of yes. the ineffable? So I think there are many different cases of ineffability, and one big distinction I make is between philosophically interesting ones and philosophically not so interesting ones. And so I'm going to give three examples for philosophically interesting cases of ineffability. Um, So first example from art. I think that many people are familiar with the feeling of... Perceiving a specific work of art, for example, listening to a piece of music, to a specific symphony, or looking at a painting that they particularly like. And in some, some of those cases, when we have such an aesthetic experience, it phenomenally resembles a state of knowledge, which means that it feels like this piece of art has opened our eyes to something new. It feels like something was revealed to us or communicated to us or we have gained some kind of deep insight. And usually that is accompanied by an exhilarating feeling. And I think many people know that and I think that's that's why many people appreciate art. Something similar, I think, is happening in religious experiences. This is my second example. So... Not everyone is religious, of course, but those who are often report that in moments of prayer, for example, or in any other moments when they have a religious experience, it feels as though they just gained a new kind of understanding or an insight into, well, whatever it might be. Um, and my third example comes from philosophy itself. For example, when we read... Let's say a piece of Wittgenstein's Tractatus, um, and we read, for example, about Wittgenstein's thought that the self has priority over the world, then this may open our eyes and make us look at the world in a completely different way. And this, the phenomenal character of this experience, is like a state of knowledge. It is like we gain a new and fresh understanding of something out there. But what connects all these examples is that whenever we ask a person, "Mm, well, so what was it that you understood in this ineffable experience? Usually people answer, well, I cannot really put it into words. I cannot really put my finger on it. It's something like this and that, but not quite. So there is evidence that people have experiences that they find impossible to put into words and my inquiry is about the question how we can make sense of such experiences in terms of contemporary analytical metaphysics is there such a way at all
0: good good that was that was very helpful um let me let me just ask i mean the the three the three examples you give, and, and throughout the book, of course, um, are from philosophy, art, and religion. Um, are those are those the only areas of of human I don't know existence or inquiry or uh, social structure, what have you, uh, where this sort of experience arises? Uh, or is, are these just the the paradigm cases? Are there could it happen in science, for example, or sports, or, or mm. something else?
1: That's that's a very good question. Um, yes, I definitely believe it could happen in other contexts as well. Um, and indeed, some philosophers like Kant, for example, or also Adorno, uh, describes experiences like that in you know, just natural settings where there is no piece of art around and there is no religious context whatsoever. And so my answer to that would be, yes, I think it could also happen in science. But I think there is something about aesthetic and religious context and also to philosophical inquiry that sort of encourages experiences of that sort. And I think that has to do with the fact that in those contexts – we are encouraged, we are prompted to see the world around us with different eyes. We're confronted with completely extraordinary um, perceptual experiences, um, which may be a, a, a very fruitful environment for having extraordinary experiences, some of which might be ineffable. So I think there might be a connection between those specific contexts and the fact that, well, and 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 the fact that such contexts encourage ineffable experiences, but I think nothing in my inquiry precludes mm-hmm. um, somebody from having ineffable experiences in a different context. Okay, um,
0: so you you start after dividing the 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 important paradigm cases from. From a number of very trivial sorts of cases, um, uh, you give a definition of ineffability, um, and you distinguish it from certain concepts that are kind of lurking nearby: uh, indescribability and unknowability. Um, so, can you, can you explain what, for you, is the ineffable? How you define it, and 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 why that definition has the form it does?
1: Okay, so first I'm going to say um, a little bit about the two other concepts you just mentioned, indescribability and unknowability. Intuitively speaking, something that is ineffable might still be describable. For example, a stone is, by my definition, ineffable for a very trivial reason because a stone is just not the kind of entity that could ever be be expressed. But it makes perfect sense to say that we could describe a stone. And I think that well and perhaps yeah, I think that's 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 probably the best example for this with unknowability. The distinction is that even if something is ineffable, it does not entail that we cannot know it. So something could be ineffable And yet, we could have some kind of knowledge of it. In fact, that is what I'm going to end up arguing for in the end, a specific kind of ineffable knowledge. So those are two um, distinctions that I think are worth making. And again, speaking intuitively, something, well, when I describe an object, then I can reveal parts of what, what characterizes this object. I can, I can describe an object, I can give the properties this object, ins- object instantiates, whereas in a case of expression, for example, an expression of a proposition, the idea is that I'm communicating my knowledge fully to another person, whereas a description is always a partial matter. Now... Would you like me to read out my definition of ineffability and then the, go through
0: each uh, clause? Uh, sure. I mean, you can also... Yeah, th- that's that's
1: fine. I mean, it's not that that long. <laughs> it's not that long. It is a little bit technical, but perhaps it might be helpful. So I define... Um, ineffability as follows. A non-linguistic item Y is ineffable if and only if it is metaphysically impossible that there be a linguistic item X whose content non-trivially entails the content of Y and whose content is in principle communicable to other finite beings by users of a finite language. So I think perhaps the first thing that might be uh, interesting to clarify is why do I bring in the clause with finite beings? Well, I think that there is perhaps a way of saying that an infinite being might have completely different expressive resources and therefore be able to express all kinds of things that we are not able to express. For example, an infinite proposition. But I'm mostly interested in what human beings can achieve with the means of human language. So, I'm not interested in infinite beings. I'm I'm interested in human beings. Um, the reason I add non-trivially is because, well, just logically speaking, for example, if we have. A proposition that expresses the contradiction, then logically speaking, everything follows from it, and thereby one could say that this contradiction expresses everything, and of course that's that 's not a meaningful way of of talking about expression um, yes, and the reason I restrict my uh, definition to metaphysical possibilities is because. I think it is just the most interesting way of um, of capturing what is interesting about ineffability, so I'm not only interested in what actual human beings which are governed by actual physical laws could achieve, but perhaps also what possible human beings in other possible worlds could achieve. By the means of human language, so that explains the clause about metaphysical possibility. Okay, so I mean
0: the key the key term here, though, seems to be expressibility or or lack thereof, and and relatedly, the idea of expressing a content. Um, so, could you say a word about expressibility uh, that that particular and and content as as those terms. Uh, play a role in your definition
1: right so I think it is it is important before we talk about ineffability to have some kind of grasp of what we actually mean by expressibility, and an approximation would be to say that um, an item y a non linguistic item y is expressible if and only if there exists some kind of x. Such that X expresses y linguistically, um, yeah, and so the role of content here is that whatever a linguistic expression might be, it must be capable of sort of um, expressing the content of the non linguistic item, so the content of the non linguistic item has to be it has to follow. Uh, from the linguistic item, okay,
0: um, so let me just
1: uh, in in later
0: chapters, I mean, after you kind of establish the conceptual background of your of your inquiry, um, you go on to argue that there, there's no good sense, and we will discuss this uh, in which there are ineffable objects or, or, or propositions um, and so forth. Um, but uh, earlier, it, you, you mentioned uh, experiences, uh, special insight, uh, so special kinds of experiences that we have. And uh, what I'm just, what I'm just wondering is uh, there there's a sense in which your your definition itself uh has an expressibility uh kind of, of of something that can have content kind of built into it uh so so for example an experience whether it's ineffable or not is is the type of thing that that you might say has has a particular kind of of content uh you can give various accounts of that um but we have experiences of, and their mental states, and so forth, and and then we we sometimes use language to express these contents, um, uh, or or we can't, as as the case may be, and so I guess the the question is, uh, your your definition says uh, a non linguistic item uh, is uh, is ineffable if and only if it's metaphysically impossible and so on and so forth Mm -hmm. but it seems like uh, to go back to your example before of the stone which is you know describable but not you know it it can't be expressed um, it it seems like you've already made it the case that no uh, no non contentful item let's put it that way no item that does not have content can even be a candidate for uh ineffability um so so almost by by definition uh an object like a stone or or the one from plotinus or something um can't be ineffable because they're not the sorts of things that have content at right all. right Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So, no. I was just wondering uh, if, if somebody were to say, or you know, I mean, if, you know, Plotinus, you know, or somebody were to say, uh, I'm I'm talking about the One, or or talking about you know the Absolute, or some of the more you know metaphysically heavy uh, items in in the history of philosophy that have been said to be ineffable. Uh, those those items are not the kinds of items that have content like like experiences um, right. and so they would they would want to say uh, I'm talking about this you know this divine thing or this 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 reality uh, that is ineffable, and you've given me a definition in which my item can't fit not because it's not linguistic which it isn't um but because it's not the kind of thing that could have any content to begin with like like an
1: experience i see i see what you mean okay so um i think i'm going to save whatever i have to say about Things like the one and ineffable objects for um uh, for a later stage when we're going to discuss that, but I think the confusion here stems from the fact that you seem to be reading non linguistic item as something like the one or something like a stone, mm-hmm. in other words, as a concrete object, whereas I'm thinking of linguist non linguistic items as a, a broader category, so for example, in let's say we have a success, successful case of expression um, I have a linguistic item like a proposition, and the non linguistic item would be a propositional attitude that i'm standing in towards that proposition, mm-hmm. so for example, a belief. I think a belief is a typical non-linguistic item that is potentially convertible into propositional form and therefore linguistically expressible, but by itself not a linguistic item yet. So I think that, that probably makes it a little bit clearer. Uh, OK, so there,
0: so there's, there still seems to be a, a kind of a built-in limitation to maybe mental states. I'm just. I guess a, a cup is a non-linguistic item, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and a thought, a, you know, an experience, a propositional attitude is a non-linguistic item. Yes. Um, so your definition is, specifies non-linguistic items, but I'm just. I'm wondering if maybe it it it, it is more like a mental state is ineffable if and only if
1: mm. i i suppose i would have to know exactly what you mean by a by a mental state well i think perhaps it is a little bit confusing because something like a stone and something like a mental state mm-hmm. um come out as ineffable According to my definition, for different reasons okay so the the concrete object, the stone, um, doesn't have any any kind of content that could ever become part of our mental contents that's how I set it up in in my terminological chapter, whereas the question is the question I'm raising in the book, and the, according to which I also tailored my ed- definition of ineffability is whether there ca- there could be non-linguistic items more similar to beliefs or other propositional attitudes um, that even though they are not concrete cannot be brought into propositional form. So I think that's 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 an important distinction between concrete objects on the one hand and as you said mental states on the other okay that's that was helpful so so maybe we should uh talk
0: about the the first category of ineffable items the the mental sorry the uh ineffable objects uh and and properties um that you that you talk about i believe in in chapter 3 uh where this is probably a a fairly well populated category throughout the history of philosophy in terms of the sorts of things that are considered uh, ineffable, um, Mm -hmm. including many, you know, concrete, in some sense, concrete objects, at least they're not, they're not mental states, they're, they're some sort of reality. Um so, can you say a word about about uh, your analysis of these claims of of ineffable objects and um, ineffable properties Yes,
1: with pleasure um, so in my chapter three what i 'm so i'm i 'm going through these historical examples that you just mentioned, and um i 'm looking at how philosophers have brought the concept of an ineffable object up and in most most of the cases uh we find talk about an ineffable absolute or the one as in plotinus or reality as a whole as in Kant's writings or slightly more um extravagant, the will, as in Schopenhauer. Mm -hmm. So there seems to be this idea that if there is an ineffable object out there, it must be some kind of very distinguished object and the suggestions are, well, it, it could be reality as a whole, or it could be God, and some philosophers identify these two, for example, Hegel. Um, so we have this sort of all-encompassing object out there that is sometimes argued to be ineffable. So then what I try to do in that chapter is to, to look at possible ways of making sense of that claim. Um, and specifically of making sense of the fact that even though we've just said a minute ago that the absolute is ineffable we are right now talking about it and specifically we're predicating a specific property of of it which is absoluteness. So how do these how how, how is that not contradictory what we're doing here? And so one way I think we can think about the absolute... I'm going to continue talking about the absolute, but I'm, I am I think it's the same as saying the world as a whole or right. uh, the one or, or even Schopenhauer's will. Mm-hmm. Um, so one way of thinking about the absolute is to say, okay, if it is supposed to be the object that encompasses everything there is about the world, then presumably every, it instantiates every property, which means that every predicate applies to it. But then, of course, every for every predicate P, also its opposite applies to it, which means that we have contradictory predicates applying to the same object, which would then make it impossible to say anything meaningful about this object, because whenever we say P of this object, we also know that we could say non-P, so that, that doesn't make doesn't make any sense. So I think this is one way of thinking about what, of thinking about how we're not making a mistake in saying that the absolute is ineffable on the one hand, and yet calling it absolute on the other. So then I move on to um, to thinking about well, what what kind of property could, could this absoluteness be? Like what kind of property? Could it be that both both that it accounts for the ineffability of this object and that it is completely unique, that no other object distinguishes it, uh, no other object instantiates it? Sorry. Mm-hmm. And so one, one, one um, area of discourse, one debate uh, this brings up immediately is the debate about hexieties, because hexieties are supposed to be the properties that uniquely identify a certain object. So that seems to fit the bill. So I go into, I zoom into current debates about hexieties. And um, just to give a sort of brief overview over the debate, hexieties are, as I said, the properties or characteristics of objects that are supposed to guarantee an object's individuality, even in cases where two objects, for example, are otherwise completely indistinguishable. So there is a famous case of Max Black, uh, where we have a universe that consists only of two solid iron spheres with a specific diameter and with a specific distance between one another. No, go ahead, sorry. Um, And in this scenario, what's interesting is that every possible way of describing one sphere is a way of describing the second sphere as well. Okay. So, um, for example, we can say, well, there is one sphere that is three meters away from another sphere. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. There is... And whatever I'm going to be able to say about that sphere, about one sphere, I will also be able to say about the other sphere because they're arranged in a symmetrical way... And they have exactly the same qualitative properties. And because they stand well, and because of the symmetrical arrangement of this universe, they also have the same relational properties. So there really is no way of distinguishing these two objects in a description. And hexieties would be a way of, as it were, solving this puzzle by giving each one of the two spheres, um, uh, a property that distinguishes them, that guarantees that they are numerically distinct. Now, what I what I argue in my book is that hexieties may actually not have the explanatory force that they purport, purport to have. And this is because in order to be able to distinguish between the hexiety of one sphere and the hexiety of another sphere... The only way to distinguish between them would be to point at the objects instantiating each one of those two hexieties. But in order to be able to point at them, we already have to know that they are individuals. So there is a sort of vicious circularity here in terms of what comes first in our metaphysical setup. So I I, I dismiss hexieties as a viable candidate for explaining the absoluteness property. And then I move on to a different way of perhaps making sense of the notion of an ineffable object, which is, well, perhaps it's an object that doesn't dis- instantiate any properties at all. There is uh, a, a current debate going on in analytical philosophy about bare particulars, Right. Um bare particulars are supposed to distinguish the substratum theory from the bundle theory of objects so the bundle theorist thinks that an object is uniquely characterized by the sum of the properties it instantiates and the substratum theorist that the substratum theorist believes that objects are something over and above the properties instantiated by them. And this over and above are bare particulars. And I basically raise the same worry against bare particulars that I also raise against um, hexieties, which is that they do not seem to have any explanatory value because in order to distinguish between them, we already have to presuppose that we're talking about an individual object but this is precisely what we were were supposed to show. So I argue that also bare particulars are not good candidates for ineffable objects. And I conclude that that this doesn't leave any any viable option, at least as far as I can see, to make sense of the notion of an ineffable object, if it is not a specific property that accounts for the ineffability, and if it is also not the complete absence of any property whatsoever that accounts for the ineffability of an object, then I cannot see what else it might be. Okay. Um, So let me just... um
0: let me ask you about explainability. I mean, it, it, this, doesn't, this just occurred to me now as I was listening to your, to your explanation. Um, is, there a, is there a relationship between what is uh, ineffable and what is not explainable? Um, I mean that's kind of a, a, a bit of a vague question, um, but a lot of a lot of the objects. Let me let me put it this way: uh, before, when when you introduced the concept in, in a very general sense, you know, intuitive sense of ineffability, you mentioned special sorts of insight uh, experiences, and and these are very very clear cases of of ineffability. Mm-hmm. Um but uh, you know a lot of the the objects that we've been talking about, you know the absolute or the hexades or bare particulars or or consnumina um are precisely sorts of things where uh they're in some sense they're they're not explained they're inaccessible in some way uh you know we can't can't know them um and so I'm just I'm just wondering if uh, maybe there's a sense of ineffability where what's ineffable is something that we cannot we we can't express it because we can't we can't get at it. All we can say is it's sort of a, a known unknown, <laughs> and as opposed to a an experience that we have that gives us insight into something these these seem to be very different and and both kind of valid uh, ideas of what you know, historically perhaps people have have gestured at when they 're talking about something being ineffable and and right. that a lot of the objects seem to be of the, of the latter sort, not where. I have, you know, people can have, say, experiences of the divine, you know, some sort of revelation. That's that's true. And and that would be a special sort of insight, as you as you mentioned. But then there can also be a concept of the divine uh, of, you know, the one or the absolute or something which uh, we is inexpressible because because we can't even get there. We can say it's 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 beyond our can in some way and but both of those seem to be uh types of ineffability and i'm just it just occurred to me you know maybe is is there something more to be said about what can or cannot be explained or what can or cannot be accessed
1: i think i think that's that's a very interesting question um i think there. There definitely is a relation between the two concepts, and I think that well, as a first approximation um what is experienced as ineffable is also often experienced as unexplainable it gives it it leaves us puzzled in a way we don't really know what happened because we had this experience that and normally we're able to to formulate our experiences to to phrase them and in this sense we and ineffable experiences, we cannot. Um, um, so, and the objects you mentioned, like, are you thinking about something like, um, like Kantian things in themselves, for example? That,
0: that, would, that would be a perfectly fine example. Yeah, you, you can experience, right. you know, you can have experiences. Um, well, obviously, you know, we have phenomenal experiences. Um, uh, and those can be ineffable right i mean uh, right. you know it before an artwork and so forth um and then we can also you know say well and there's this other kind of reality this the numinal uh which we we can't really we can't access it um and and that could also be ineffable but in a in a different sort of way
1: yes yes so i think I think perhaps um what distinguishes the case of art as you just said and the case of a kantian thing in, it, in itself is that there is a way in which the kantian thing in itself is a perfectly mundane thing because it as it were stands behind every object we we have causal contact with even though even though Kant would refrain from saying something like this because as we all know, Kant would not want us to talk about the thing in itself at all. Um, but I think so to come back to what you mentioned about unexplainability, um, the thing in itself is what what is sort of it's it's sort of postulate that we have to assume in order to make sense of our Perceptual experiences, but according to Kant, we never we never experience things in themselves uh, directly. They only ever uh, enter our mind in a mediated way through sense perceptions and through our specific um, ways of intuiting the world. So, in a way, it is well. So the thing in itself has a certain explanatory function, Mm -hmm. but. Itself, the, its existence, and what explains the thing in itself, cannot be explained. And this is perhaps something that could be linked up to, to the ineffability of things in themselves as well. So I think there is, there might be an interesting connection between unexplainability and ineffability as well.
0: Okay. Um, so after you
1: sort of discuss the
0: the ineffable objects. Um, uh, you then set your sights on ineffable propositions or or, or truths um, and one of these, for example, you you have actually throughout the book you have these very nice diagrams in which you kind of break things down into their various uh, types and subtypes and so forth um, so one of one of the ineffable uh, truths that you talk about is is for example, the liar paradox. Um, and you also have, uh, Tom Nagel's discussion of, of, uh, the experience of a bat, mm-hmm. right? Um, what it's like to be a bat. Um, yeah. and then, uh, Frank Jackson's discussion of the neuroscientist, Mary, who grows up in the black and white room and never has an experience of, of color, right? Um, right. so could you say something about, uh, you know, your analysis of, of, ineffable truths of of these sorts.
1: Yes. Um, so I, I'll start with the liar paradox because it, it's actually not a kind of example that I would have thought of immediately when thinking about ineffability. But whenever I spoke to other philosophers about ineffable propositions, people immediately said, oh yeah, right, the liar paradox. And so I began thinking about it a little bit. And I think... The ineffable. Well, what 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 relates the liar paradox to ineffability is that um, we have a situation where we cannot we cannot ex- we cannot express the truth value of a certain proposition. So the liar paradox is the paradox where we know that a person is a notorious liar, which means that this person will always utter. A a falsehood we will never say a truth. Mm-hmm. So let's say this person or this liar uh, utters the sentence, this sentence is false. So then the question is, how should we evaluate this sentence? How should, what truth value does this sentence have? Uh, on the one hand, if it says that it falls, that it is false, then knowing that we're talking to a liar who always says false things, it would be true. But on the other hand, if it was true, then knowing again that we're dealing with a liar, it would be false. So it's unclear what the truth value for this sentence would be. And then there are all kinds of, well, people are really puzzled by the semantic paradoxes. There are uh, also other other kinds of uh, semantic paradoxes. And interestingly... They all seem to be related in some way to um, to self-reference, to uh, definitions or or setups where uh, we where self-reference uh, comes into play, and I think that is interesting because of what I'm going to argue or what I argue at the end of the book about uh, self-knowledge. But this is just a side point. So um, this is a way of motivating perhaps the notion of an ineffable proposition. We could say that the proposition expressing the truth value of the liar sentence is ineffable. But as I then say um, in my book, I don't think that this particular example has a lot of metaphysical weight. And I don't think it it adds much to to the discussion of what we're really interested in, which is how to make sense of the specific ineffable experiences that we encounter in aesthetic and religious and philosophical contexts. So I then move on to, um, the, uh, very well-known example *Bat* and Frank Jackson's Mary. And so here, um, so the, the examples are familiar from the debate between, between physicalists and non-physicalists. The physicalist says that everything there is to know about the world can be expressed in terms of physics, and the non-physicalist says, no, there is more than that. And then we have these examples uh, of um, what it must be like to be a bat and what it must be like for the neuroscientist Mary to perceive the color red for the first time in her life. And um, so the debate is over whether or not, over the question whether or not Mary, I'm I'm going to focus on Mary from now on, Mary learns a new fact when she gets out of her room. Mm -hmm. And so, and if we want to say, well, yes, I mean, there is this clear sense in which she learns something new, then the question is, does that, get us into ontological trouble like how do we square that kind of fact with all the facts we already know from physics um and so one way of thinking about this is that um or one way that has been suggested is that um there are these ineffable perspectival propositions that somehow um capture the knowledge that Mary gains or the, the knowledge or, or capture what it is like to be a bat in Thomas Nagel's case. And I then go on to argue that this just doesn't seem to be a very helpful way of setting things up, because as soon as we're talking about facts and corresponding propositions, um, there will always be the question of how to square those facts with the facts that we already have. And it seems very much like once we admit something like perspectival facts, we're going to run into incoherence because different perspectives will, will yield different perspectival facts, which will be mutually exclusive and therefore won't fit into one coherent picture of reality. So I dismiss this way of thinking, um, of thinking about ineffable propositions. And I end up arguing, well, I, I consider a few more cases of ineffable propositions, but I end up arguing that there is no helpful, metaphysically coherent way in which we can make sense of that notion.
0: Okay. Um, so uh, you also talk about um, ineffable uh uh, contents um, and one of the cases there is uh, non-conceptual content, right, which is right. Uh, major major player in in discussions of animal cognition in particular. Um, could you could you say something about about non-conceptual contents and their, right. their possible yes. ineffability?
1: Right. So, yes. So in my chapter on ineffable content, indeed, my first candidate is, um, non-conceptual content, a uh, concept of, like very, very, um, hotly debated in philosophy of perception. And so the basic question here is, um, are, are all the contents of our mental states conceptual or are there contents that are not conceptual, um, And, of course, conceptualists argue that all our mental contents are conceptual and non-conceptualists argue that they are not. And so how would one argue for non-conceptual content? Well, there are um, certain thought experiments or certain actual facts that seem to suggest that we do have something like non-conceptual content. So, for example, Tim Crane argues that... um, when we look at a waterfall for an extended period of time, let's say for five minutes, and then direct our gaze to uh, a static object, then it will seem like that static object is moving upwards, um, while at the same time, of course, given that it is static, remaining uh, still. So, and and this seems to be a case in which um, we have well, in which our mental state is characterized by contradictory contents. so And that might lead us to say, well, we, we don't want to end up having something like contradictory contents. Maybe we just, we have non-conceptual contents in those cases. Mm-hmm. Um, so then, but I don't find those kinds of examples very convincing because um, in order to be able to say, that we would have contradictory contents in such cases, we already have to think about it in a conceptual way. So um, I'm not sure that it gives us what we want. I'm not sure it gives us the kind of non-conceptual content. And perhaps a, a slightly more um, intuitive way of thinking about it is that our um, the contents of our perceptual experiences are so rich that it seems almost necessary that they outstrip our conceptual abilities the detail of the perceptual detail of our experiences is so um so vast that um it seems very counterintuitive to say that we have a concept to express all of these details uh, that's 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 um uh, often referred to as the fineness of grain mm-hmm. of our perceptual experiences, and I think that argument has a lot of intuitive force. But I think on a closer look, we can see why nothing in that argument, um, nothing in that argument, establishes the existence of. A kind of content that is intrinsically ineffable that is intrinsically Mm non-conceptual and one of the key arguments um for that point of view have been has been made by um john mcdowell who argues that we can express whatever kind of perceptual content we want to express by using um demonstrative concepts and perhaps in addition to that, a higher order sortle mm-hmm. to point out exactly what we want to point out. So, for example, um, there is the question whether or not we, we can really express every shade of a particular color. And in a way, the answer seems to be no, because we, we only have a certain range of terms for different shades of blue. On the other hand, though, we can express Whatever shade of blue we want to express by pointing at it, by sort of making reference to it in a demonstrative way, and perhaps adding a higher order sort of like blue. And then so that the concept would be that shade of blue. Mm -hmm. And that seems to be, even though that would not be a canonical expression, it would, it would constitute a basis on which we could then go on and form a canonical expression for that particular shade of blue. So I think. I think that the discussion about, um, fine grainedness and concept contents of perception in general won't give us a reason to believe in, uh, non-conceptual and therefore ineffable contents. Okay.
0: Well, that's sort of, um, that's a good segue into your, your final chapters, which, where you present your own positive account, I suppose, of, of the things that are ineffable and, and ineffable, ineffable, um, uh, you give four different sorts of knowledge right there's inevitable knowledge um, in which you include uh knowing how uh, right. logical knowledge um, and then indexical knowledge um, and phenomenal knowledge right uh so maybe you can say a word about these and then i'll i'll i guess i'll follow up with this your your core concept of acquaintance and and self acquaintance
1: right. <laughs> Yes, so so. in my final two chapters, I talk about ineffable knowledge. And I start off by summarizing what I've said in the previous chapters, which boils down to whenever we try to argue for something like ineffable objects, truths, or contents, we seem to run into some kind of uh, metaphysical incoherence or, on a closer look, the alleged ineffability evaporates. So let's move on to ineffable knowledge. And then the the, the strategy of my argument is to say, all right, we, we have these cases of ineffable knowledge out there already. We have, I'm talking about four different kinds. And as soon as we've established that, then perhaps it is not as difficult to believe in extraordinary kinds of ineffable knowledge as well. So I start off with um, the knowledge that, knowledge how debate. Mm-hmm. And um, I introduce the debate. And the basic question here is, is there a fundamental difference between knowledge um, that can be expressed in knowledge that ascriptions, so for example I know that it is 7:30 uh, in the evening right now and other kinds of knowledge um, that seem to be more difficult to express that seem to that seem to um, be more something like an ability or a capability or some kind of uh, uh, disposition so for example riding a bike is a classical example or perhaps playing the violin. Mm-hmm. So, is there is there a meaningful distinction to be drawn be- between these two? And I think that yes, very clearly there is a difference between these two types of knowledge. And the difference is that knowledge that is expressible and communicable, and knowledge how is not. Um, at least, only knowledge how is communicable only up to a certain point. And so, in my in my discussion, I focus on. Um, uh, on an argument by um, Tim Williamson and Jason Stanley, where they basically argue that every knowledge-how ascription can be converted into an equivalent knowledge-that description, and what I'm arguing is that the problem with with such conversions is that it always so the newly formulated knowledge-how that comes in knowledge-that form will always involve a primitive, which Stanley and Williamson call the mode of presentation M, under which we know how to do X. And what I'm arguing is that everything that is interesting about knowledge how and that distinguishes it from knowledge that is sort of is put into that little primitive. So even though it seems like we've managed to convert knowledge how ascriptions into syntactically um, uh, identical knowledge, that descriptions, there is this primitive of the, the the primitive mode of presentation that still contains everything that is mysterious about knowledge. How, and intuitively, what is this mysterious thing is that we we cannot reveal knowledge how to ride a bike, for example, by purely linguistic means. We cannot ex- we cannot fully explain to a person how to ride a bike it knowing learning how to ride a bike involves a certain process of learning that involves a trial and error <coughs> and getting into getting into the bike riding business it cannot be fully spelled out in in language so yes yeah, so i think that um knowledge how is is an obvious candidate for an ineffable kind of knowledge and then i move on to discuss uh, basic logical knowledge and um uh very roughly what i'm doing is i'm i 'm looking into a few uh, uh, things a few few remarks by frege and just uh, describing um, what what logic actually is, and what he says is that um, we can, only, we can only say things and we can only prove things up to a certain point. And this certain point is our, our logical laws, our logical axioms. And beyond that point, well, there is nothing more to do, not for the philosopher, not for the logician. And what I'm saying is that, well, in order to come up with these logical laws, with our logical axioms, um, well, knowing what these are, is a type of knowledge so uh, basic logical knowledge given that it cannot be expressed in logical formulas anymore um, is a second type of ineffable knowledge and uh, I then move on to indexical knowledge which is a very interesting kind of knowledge also hotly debated Um, and the basic question here is well It's not even a question. It's something everyone agrees on. There is a type of knowledge that cannot be expressed in words, which is an indexical knowledge. And the way we can see that this knowledge exists is in uh, cases like the famous supermarket example by John Perry, where he is pushing his supermarket card around and he sees a trail of sugar on the floor and he keeps following the trail of sugar and keeps following it. And he, he forms the thought somebody in the supermarket is making a mess. And when he sort of, he's, he, he, he follows up the end of the tray of the sugar trail. And eventually he realizes he is the person who has a torn sugar packet in his cart. So he is the person who's making the mess. Um, and that so that kind of knowledge um, involved a self description of the property of making a mess and so the the what's what's interesting here is that we could have described the scenario to the person in the supermarket. We could have said there is a guy in the supermarket who's making a mess, and then this guy is standing here and there, and this guy has blonde hair. But nothing in a full description of the scenario would enable the person to infer that he is the person making the mess. So that it seems to be a special kind of process that is necessary in order for us to realize that a certain property um, is instantiated by ourselves, like uh, that we are the 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 acting person in a given scenario. Right. Let um, me let
0: me let me just ask um, to go back for a moment because I we're we're starting to run out of time, and I oh, I, I, I did want to ask about um, so the the knowing how versus knowing that, and and this kind of goes back to your definition of uh, ineffability in the. Beginning in terms of something being or not being linguistically um, expressible, and I guess the the question is, uh, your paradigm case of of knowing that is knowing how. Oh, sorry, knowing how is knowing how to ride a bike or or play in a play a musical instrument or something. Yes, and um, uh, you know, so somebody somebody might say uh, that that knowledge how is, is perfectly expressible, um, I express it just by doing it. I, I don't need to express it linguistically. And, and so in other words, uh, the idea of ineffability isn't just uh, cannot be, say, spoken or cannot be expressed using some sort of language uh, but there are different ways of expressing and um, expressing knowing how by doing something is a perfectly legitimate form of expressibility and that would mean that that sort of knowledge is is not ineffable at all it's just not right it's not ineffable linguistically but but that would just be
1: you know, why would that matter? I see, I see. Well, um, that's a legitimate question. And um, to a certain extent, uh, restricting expression or my definition of ineffability to um, linguistic expressions is is a purely stipulative matter. And that's because I'm... I'm mostly interested in what can be done with language and what cannot. But I think there is also uh, a deeper sense in which um, in which calling an action, an expression of a particular knowledge how is um, not helpful. And I think it has to do with the fact that it does not meet the, the aspect of communicability, the, the the requirement of communicability. So if you ride a bike in front of me, um, then perhaps there is a sense in which we could say that you're expressing your knowledge how by riding that bike. But there is no way that you can communicate to me that knowledge. So by by looking at you riding a bike, I won't be able to learn how to ride a bike. So I think that's that 's an important point uh, to make in in this co- in this context um, and another thing that might be interesting to mention here is that i'm one reason why i'm so interested in Ex- the expressive uh, capacities of language is because language seems to be our most fine grained means of communication that we have. so some people sometimes tell me, well an artwork can perhaps express um, an emotion another an emotion mm-hmm. or uh, can be expressive in, in, in some way and um, so in that sense perhaps aesthetic contents as is often uh, held are not ineffable at all and i think there is that is a perfectly legitimate intuition and under a different um definition of ineffability that's that's perfectly true but um there is the problem that we don't really have any clear grasp of what a semantics of artworks would be like or a semantics of of actions how what would constitute um, a successful case of, of expression and and in the case of the bike for example the uh, aspect of communicability so mm-hmm. i think there is it's just our most intuitive way of thinking about ineffability is in terms of linguistic the 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 non ability to express something linguistically and that that justifies my focus, but I completely agree with you that um, this is an arbitrary stipulation, and somebody else might want to think about it in a different way okay so I think we have
0: uh, one one more quick question, and it's really not a quick question, but we're <laughs> but we're sort of running out of time. But I do want to to get to it. Is uh, in your last chapter, you you talk about um, subjectivity uh, playing a, a central role in in meaningful in F- Ineffability, and that you explain uh, ineffability in terms of uh, self acquaintance, right? So there's a right. a relationship of acquaintance, and then also this concept of a self. Can you? I, I realize this is you know kind of the the what you've been building to, but uh, unfortunately, uh, readers will well, fortunately, have to have to read the book to get the details. But if, you could, <laughs> if you could say a word about Uh, about this role of self-acquaintance in in your account.
1: Absolutely, with pleasure. So the four kinds of ineffable knowledge I introduce, and specifically indexical knowledge, um, uh, seem to indicate that there is such a thing as the self, um, which is required for self-descriptions, for example, in cases of ineffable knowledge. And my argument is then that we can get acquainted with this entity, which is ourself. And I suggest that this is what's going on in cases of meaningful ineffability. Um, And so there are a lot of claims involved here, um, and I'm I'm not sure I'm going to have time to go through all of those, but perhaps the most important thing to say is that we do have evidence that this entity called the self must exist because otherwise things like inexplicable knowledge don't really make much sense, and mm-hmm. uh, we need the self for these self descriptions and then um, I discuss also phenomenal knowledge and knowledge by acquaintance um, I suggest that it 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 is perfectly um, legitimate to assume that we can also get acquainted with this self just in in just the same way that we can get acquainted with other things and objects out there. Um, And so what I'm saying is that the fact that we're getting acquainted with ourselves can account for the meaningfulness that is attached to the kinds of meaningful, ineffable experiences that form the subject matter of my book. Um, And this is because... Ordinarily, ourselves are always present. They're always sort of the um, reference point for all of our experiences. But hardly ever do we, hardly ever is the self the object of our direct, um, well, perception or perhaps not even perception of our uh, awareness. So we get acquainted with the self in meaningful moments. And this can explain why we we attach um, importance to such experiences. Um, okay,
0: I think. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I didn't mind me to cut you off there. Sorry.
1: Uh, sorry. No. I'm. I was just going to add that. Um, I realize that the way we've discussed things right now, this, this, this might sound like a little bit of an ad hoc idea. And, um, I would, ha- I would need some extra time to run through the entire argument, but it might be, um, for the interested hearer, it might be, um, an indication of where, where I'm headed at the, in the last chapter of my book. Um, um, yeah. okay very good. Well, I mean our, the readers
0: will have to discover that for themselves. Um but in the in the meantime, um I'd like to end with a question about where where you uh plan to go next philosophically. Are you going to continue uh along the same path as as this book and and maybe answer further questions or are you working on something else entirely?
1: um it's it's both really it's i'm 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 still very interested in ineffability and um trying to refine the concept of ineffability in in different contexts um but currently what I'm working on most of the time is um uh, uh analyzing problems that occur identical problems that occur in different philosophical domains so for example at the moment i'm writing a paper about the access problem that occurs in for for mathematical realism mm-hmm. for moral realism for realism about modality realism about logic etc cetera, etc cetera. so as in the case with ineffability which is a concept that comes up in all kinds of different philosophical contexts also now i'm i'm dealing with um problems that seem to have uh, sort of cross domain, uh, relevance. That's, I guess that's, that's something I'm specifically interested in that guides my philosophical <laughs> endeavor.
0: Yeah. Well,
1: s- sounds good.
0: I'm, I'd be interested in, in,
1: in reading that,
0: um, uh, whenever that comes out. Um, Thank you. so, um, in the meantime, uh, I appreciate, uh,
1: you're taking the time to, to talk with us about your new book. Thank you very much, Carrie. It was really, really nice talking to you about it. And thank you so much for taking the time to actually get into my book and thinking about it and inviting me to, to give this interview today. I'm very happy about that. Uh, very good. So, yeah,
0: thanks again. And uh, good luck with, with what you're working on still.
1: Thank you very much. The same to you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to my
0: interview with Sylvia Jonas, Polonsky Postdoctoral Fellow at the Van Leer Institute and visiting researcher at Hebrew University in Jerusalem. We've been talking about her new book, Ineffability and Its Metaphysics, which is just out from Palgrave Macmillan. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and thank you for listening.